Thank you for tuning into this sermon from New Life Student Ministries. Our goal is to inspire, equip, and support our students and families with biblically rich and God-centered teaching. These messages are meant to be supplemental and not substitutional for our weekly gathering. We hope this sermon is a blessing to you and your spiritual walk. Hey, New Life students, how are you tonight? Hey, good to see you. My name is Jason Jackson. I have the honor of being with you all this evening. I serve as the associate pastor at New Life Downtown, have been here at uh, New Life Church for five, almost five and a half years. And uh, I'm really excited to be here tonight for two reasons. Number one, uh, I love Pastor Tim and Mariah and Victor and Catherine and your team here. And so, so happy to come and serve alongside of them. And number two, I love student ministry. Uh, I came to Jesus in high school. I didn't grow up in church. Uh, my family uh, was a, a, a place that uh, sort of nominally identified with Christianity. It's like we grew up in the middle of nowhere in north central Iowa. And so if people asked like what religion you're a part of, they're like, well, we're Christians. But we went to church rather occasionally and didn't talk much about Jesus in our home. And in the midst of kind of an unraveling of my life over a series of a couple events my sophomore year, uh, which included my girlfriend breaking up with me the day after Valentine's Day in the school cafeteria to start dating a senior who didn't shower. Yeah, I appreciate the compassion. That's, that's really nice of you. Uh, that was the minor key that hit that time. But uh, also I had a cousin come down with cancer. He was the same age as me. He ended up dying a few months later. Uh, and my parents separated. In the midst of that, it's like my life was unraveling and it was my neighbor and my boss at the supermarket, the grocery store that I worked at, uh, who also happened to be my ex-girlfriend's dad. Uh, he, he led me to Christ in the middle of all of that. And Jesus changed my life as a 16 year old uh, in the middle of a cornfield in Iowa. And so uh, I felt shortly after that, like I wanna give my life to student ministry. So I actually spent uh, eight years as a youth pastor uh, in Tulsa. And so being back in a student ministry environment is always such a joy for me. Uh, and we're gonna pick up today in this series that you've been going through for the last several weeks entitled, uh, it's a series through the Psalms, this collection of Old Testament songs and prayers entitled To Be Human. Uh, which is an interesting sort of thing. How do the Psalms relate to being human? But if we really think about the Psalms and the way they're meant to be thought about, the Psalms teach us how to bring every aspect of our human experience to God in prayer. They teach us to take all of what it means to be human and to bring it to God in prayer and in worship, to say, this is the entirety of my experience as a human in this world, and I can bring all of it to God. I don't have to take parts of my life and say, okay, God, I can bring this to you, but I'm trying to hide this. Or God, you're interested in this part of my life, but you really have no care or concern about this part. The Psalms teach us that God actually cares about the entirety of us and that there's no part of our life as humans that we can't bring to him in prayer. He actually invites us to. He welcomes us to bring the entirety of ourselves to him in prayer. He's actually worthy of it. He's actually worthy of us bringing all of us. And so, so far in this series, you've talked about the Psalms of confession that teach us that we can be honest with God, that we can tell the truth about ourselves to God in prayer, that there's things that we don't, we don't have to hide 
our sin, but we can bring that before God and say, God, this is what's going on in my life right now. I can be honest with you about it. Talked about the Psalms of Thanksgiving, which teach us to bring our thanks, our gratitude to God. A few weeks ago, you talked about laments. How is it that we bring the emotion of sadness to God, that when we're experiencing those things that break us on the inside, how do we bring that to God in prayer? You've talked about the Psalms of trust. Teach us to take our fear, our anxiety, our weakness, that sense that we don't have it all figured out, that we're not in control, how to bring that to God in prayer. And tonight, we're going to talk about how to bring our anger to God in prayer, <laughs> that God is worthy of our anger. When they announced the title of the sermon in the leaders gathering, Prem immediately went, what? <laughs> you can't do that, which I think is all of our experience, right? Like, wait, what kind of sermon is this? But if we're honest, like anger is a familiar feeling to a lot of us. It's a familiar feeling to all of us. It's the most familiar feeling that I have. When I think about the emotion that I experience the most often in life, the emotion that is the most readily available to me is the emotion of anger. I think that's probably two reasons. Number one is the time period that I grew up in. I'm a Gen Xer, which means I'm at least two, maybe three generations earlier than you. I was riding around with my 13-year-old daughter this week, and uh, she reminded me very gently that I've been alive now in six decades. I don't know how I feel about that, <laughs> or that laugh. <laughs> but when it, when it, Gen Xer means that my kind of formative years, my adolescence was spent in the 80s and the 90s. And if you know anything about the 90s, the 90s are when like alt-rock went mainstream. It was the advent of grunge music. And so our pop stars were Kurt Cobain of Nirvana and Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam and Alanis Morissette and whoever that lady was that sang for the Cranberries. I can't remember her name. But our music was angry. It was dark. Everything that I listened to on my like 15 second skip disc, you know, like 15 second uh, skip protection CD Walkman was some sort of like angry music. Why was angry music so popular? Because we all felt angry about things. Why? I don't know. We just did. The second reason is the most familiar emotion for me is I'm an Enneagram one. Any Enneagram people here in the house? Okay. So for those of you who don't know what the Enneagram is, it's a kind of personality typing or tool. Uh, and it's divided up into nine types, one through nine to keep it really simple. The Enneagram one is referred to as the perfectionist. The one who has this deep sense that there is a right way and a wrong way to do everything. There is a right and a wrong to everything in the world. And Enneagram ones are typically angry because not everything is right all the time. So we're just, there is this sense of like obsessiveness about making everything right and good and perfect in the world. And then this corresponding deep sense of anger that it never is. If you were to take the Enneagram types and match them up with Avenger characters, the Enneagram one would be Bruce Banner. Right, this sort of like obsessive, like nerdy, detail-oriented sort of person with a raging beast on the inside. Right, that's the Enneagram one. My favorite scene, I think, in actually all the Avengers movies is that moment where they're kind of gathering together uh, in destroyed New York cities. The aliens are coming in and then Bruce Banner pulls up on that motorcycle. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, what are you doing, man? <laughs> like, don't bring the scientists to this fight. <laughs> and Cap looks at him and goes don't you think it's about time that you get angry? And then Banner looks back at him and says, Cap, the thing is, 
I'm always angry. That's how I feel. I feel angry all the time. It's an easily accessible emotion for me. But if I'm really honest, I'm uncomfortable with that. That's hard to say. It's hard to experience. It's hard to feel. I'm uncomfortable with anger in other people. And I'm uncomfortable with anger in me. It's the, it's the emotion that oftentimes feels the most out of control to us. It's the emotion that feels a bit scary. It feels unsafe. At times it even feels wrong or evil. That's why we have that response like, wait a minute, God's worthy of our anger. I can't bring that to God. That is wrong. If I think about some of the moments in my life where I've experienced the most amount of shame, it's when I've lost my temper. It's when I've gotten angry and disproportionately so. If I think about some of the deepest scars that I have, it's when my dad got angry with me and the things that my dad said to me in those moments, those voices that I still hear at times in really dark moments. When I was going through premarital counseling, my wife and I, when we were dating, we actually did uh, pre-engagement counseling. We had a pretty rocky dating relationship and we were like, we really like each other and we think we wanna get married. And so we started seeing a counselor to help us walk through some things. And as we were sitting in, in counseling, the counselor would often look at, it, look at me and go, how does that make you feel? I hate that question. <laughs> and I had two responses. I was either fine or I was frustrated. That's it. I had no other emotions, just fine and frustrated. So like four sessions in, we walk into the counselor's office and he hands me this sheet of paper. And on this sheet of paper are all of these like vocabulary words. And across the top are like mad, sad, glad, like all of these really basic emotion words. And then underneath it, a whole bank of like increasing emotions to those, those things. And I, I was like, what do you want me to do with this? He's like, you cannot use the terms fine or frustrated again in this room. You have to choose an emotion and then choose the degree to which you feel it. So he'd sit there and he'd be like, so how do you feel? And I'm like, okay, sad. Uh, I think I'm heartbroken. <laughs> I think that's what I feel. But I, I, frustrated was always there for me, but I didn't want to say that I was angry. I didn't want to say I was infuriated. I didn't want to say that I was enraged. Because of the way that my dad handled his anger, I wanted to deny it in myself. I wanted to suppress it. I wanted to contain it. I wanted to bottle it up in some way. But what happens is that every time we do that with anger, it comes out sideways. It leaks in some way. And we end up having a disproportionate response somewhere in our lives. That someone irritates us in just a small way and we explode because we've been taking all of the anger that we feel and pressing it down and containing it within and all of a sudden it's like a balloon pops and it all comes out at once and typically to the wrong person and in the wrong way. I learned at a marriage retreat recently, we were at a marriage retreat with a group of people from New Life Downtown and the counselors that were kind of leading the retreat started talking about the kinds of things that our bodies do that betray our emotions. That we have these nonverbal ways of communicating what's actually going on with us. And so they asked, they opened it up to the group and they said, what does your spouse do 
uh, that what does their body do that tells you what it is that they're feeling? And I'm kind of looking around the room like, oh, I wonder who's gonna go first. And my wife raises her hand. <laughs> oh no, what is gonna happen? And I, I'm there and all of the rest of the downtown staff are there, these folks that I'm just getting to know and lead and those things. And my wife stands up, she's like, when my husband's angry, he blinks. And I was like, what? And she goes, he blinks really angrily. And all of the staff in a chorus said, amen. It's like, they all knew. Everybody knew, like, I'm trying to contain my anger. And the way that I contain it is like this. Like, I just blink at people in ways that show that I'm enraged. I'm like, I never knew that I did this. So after the service, if I'm blinking in a strange way, please let me know. It comes out in strange ways. Maybe tonight you feel angry. Maybe you feel more angry than you've ever felt before. I think if we look around, our world feels more angry than it has maybe ever felt. In the last two years, the emotion that seems to be expressed most often in social media and elsewhere is anger. The thing is that anger, we're usually not sure what to do with it. Sometimes when we think about our anger where you feel that sense of shame, that we're trying to deal with it, we're trying to figure it out and we just know it's not working. When we think about anger, we feel the scars. We see it all around us. We see the scars that we carry or the scars that other people carry. And we've been in the place where we stood in the path of someone else's anger and we're not sure what to do with it. Maybe your anger scares you. Maybe it's, anger in others that scare you. Maybe it's the anger that you see around in your school that scares you. And maybe if you've grown up in church, maybe you're familiar with verses that are maybe like already popping up in your head about anger. Paul talked about it sometimes. He said things like this, in your anger, do not sin. And do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Or later on in that same verse, he says, get rid of all bitterness and all rage and all anger and all brawling and all slander and every kind of malice. He says, get rid of anger. Don't sin in your anger. Like Paul, that's nice to say. But it's a whole lot easier said than done. Maybe you're like me. I spent years, decades wondering, what do I do with this? What do I do with this anger that I feel? Because stuffing it is just not working. And what the Psalms do for us is the Psalms pave a path for us to point every passion, every emotion that we feel to God in prayer. They teach us how to take everything that we feel and everything that we experience and to point it to God in prayer. The title of the message is God is worthy of our anger. That idea of worthy means that God is weighty. In other words, he can handle it. He's strong enough and stable enough and sturdy enough and steadfast enough he can handle it. He is not as afraid of our anger as we are afraid of it. He's not as afraid, uh, as afraid of your anger as you are. So we can bring our anger to him in prayer, even if we're angry with him. Even if we're angry with him, it's better to talk to him about it than to turn away from him. He would much rather have us bring it out in the open in prayer than to keep it inside. And so tonight what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at a group of psalms. We're gonna look specifically at one, but the group of psalms, you've had psalms of confession and psalms of trust and psalms of gratitude. We're gonna look at a group of psalms that scholars call the imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory is like a nice British term, right? 
for trying to say something they're actually trying to say. It's Psalms that curse. It's Psalms of revenge. It's Psalms of anger. It's Psalms that say things that we look at and we're like, that shouldn't be in the Bible. How is that there? We're gonna look at those Psalms tonight. If you wanna follow along, we're gonna be in Psalm 58. These Psalms follow a general, a general pattern, a general format. It's three parts. We're gonna look at each of those parts tonight. It's the same parts that the Psalms of sadness or the Psalms of lament follow, which makes sense. Therapists tell us that anger is typically a masking emotion. That actually anger is what's at the surface, but it's hiding something that's underneath. That we're angry because we actually feel sad. That we're angry because we actually feel afraid. We're angry, but we actually feel hurt. And we don't like to feel sad and we don't like to feel angry and we don't like to feel hurt. And we don't like to feel afraid. We don't like any of those emotions. So we're mad at the fact that we feel those things. And we're mad at the people and the things that cause us to feel that way. We get mad at anything that causes us to feel negative emotions. And so the immediate thing we feel is anger because underneath it are these other emotions that are really hard for us to deal with. And what therapists tell us is we have to be able to name and identify the anger so that we can get through it to the actual thing that's underneath the surface where God can come in and begin to heal us and help us in the middle of those things. So it makes sense that it follows that same pattern as those Psalms of lament or sadness because anger masks those things. It masks fear and masks disappointment. It masks pain and masks grief. We don't like those things and we don't like the person or the thing or the event that caused it. And typically what we want is we want someone to pay or we want someone to fix it or we want someone to make it right. We're angry because of these things. And so if you want to open your Bible, we're going to follow along in Psalm 58. It'll be up on the screen though. The first thing we see in these Psalms, the first part of them is a complaint. And the complaint the psalmist names what the wrong thing is. If there's any Seinfeld fans, any Seinfeld fans, is that too old of a television show? There's a few of you. This is like Festivus, the airing of the grievances. This is a way of saying like, I'm going to say what's actually bothering me. I'm going to be honest about my anger. It's often in the Psalms preceded by an address like, Lord, God. You can hear the psalmist screaming out, Lord. The words are directed to God himself. What these Psalms teach us to do is they teach us that what we want to say to our enemies, what we want to say to the people and the things and the events that have caused us anger, we can say to God. We can actually direct those things to God. Whatever it is that has happened to us, whatever it is that's making us angry, whatever it is that we want to say to the people or to the events or the things that are causing us to feel that way, we can actually say to God, he's worthy of it. He can handle it. Now, please hear me for just a second though. That doesn't mean that we only say these things to God. We need others to know as well. We don't just say them to God. We say them to others as well. We need others to know, especially those who have the agency to stop what it is that's hurting you. If there's something going on in your life right now, the thing that you're angry about is the way that someone is hurting you, the way that someone is abusing you, the way that somebody is mistreating you, the, things that are, the way that someone's bullying you, the things that someone is saying about you, you can say those things to God in prayer but please also say them to someone else. 
Say them to a parent, to a guardian, to a grandparent, to a youth worker, to a teacher, to a counselor. Say them to someone, to a pastor. Say them to someone who has the agency to help you, to come alongside and help you process what's happening, what happened to you, what is happening to you. You can say it to God, but there are things that you need to say to others as well, okay? So as we're talking about how to say these things to God, that doesn't mean that we keep them inside. We also need to say them to people that can help us. Psalm 58 opens this way. It says, do you rulers indeed speak justly? Do you judge people with equities, mad at people that are supposed to be leading, supposed to be helping, supposed to be doing the right thing? He says, no, in your heart, you devise injustice and your hands met out violence on the earth. He's angry. He's like, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to lead. You're supposed to help. You're supposed to come alongside. You're supposed to take the power that you've been given and use it to help other people. And instead, you're just acting out violently and doing these things. Why does the psalmist say these things? Because naming, our, naming evil, naming what's wrong in the world in prayer actually starts to ease the anger inside of us. It actually eases it by, instead of bottling up and allowing it to build, naming it begins to ease it. Remember that moment in Harry Potter where Dumbledore is talking to Harry and Harry like refers to he who shall not be named by he who shall not be named. And Dumbledore looks at him and says, call him Voldemort. Always use the proper name for things for fear of a name increases fear of the thing itself. It's the same thing with anger that if we don't name it, it actually increases it. If we don't name it, if we don't call it out, if we try to deny it or stuff it, our anger festers, it increases, it becomes toxic inside of us. But when we pray, even angry prayers begins to release our rage and it releases it in the right way to the right one. It releases it in the right way to the right one. It releases it to God rather than causing it to come out sideways. So the first thing that we do in these, in these Psalms, the first thing that we can do in prayer with our anger is we can complain. We can name it before God in prayer. The second thing that we see in these Psalms is a petition, an ask, a going to God and saying, naming what's going on and then asking God to do something about it, asking God to act. In the lament Psalms, in the sadness Psalms, we're asking God to help, God help, God save, God deliver. In these imprecatory psalms, in these cursing psalms, we ask God to take revenge. We ask God to take vengeance into his own hands. We ask God to create justice. What the psalmist actually teaches to do is to say to God what we want to do to our enemies. That what we want to do to our enemies, we can entrust to God in prayer. We can actually turn over to him. The psalmist actually asks God to do to, the, to their enemies what those enemies have done to them or what those enemies have done to others. And these, these scriptures are like raw. They're unfiltered, they're drawing. Psalm 58 says this, break the teeth in their mouths, O God. The psalmist says, punch them in the face. It's essentially what the psalmist is saying, like, God, this is what's going on. The leaders are being stupid. Would you punch them in the face? Would you hit them in the mouth? Would you break their teeth in? Like, can you say that? (laughs) Psalm 109 says this way. It's talking about someone else that's doing evil. It says, may his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. It's in the Bible. 
Psalm 137 is maybe the hardest one of them all. Daughter Babylon, doomed to instruction. Happy is the one who repays you, referring to those who have attacked Israel. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you've done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. How can anyone pray like that? When I read these Psalms, what always happens to me is any Jim Gaffigan fans in the, in the house? It's like immediately that Jim Gaffigan crowd voice comes in my head. You can't say that. That's not a prayer. I shouldn't be here right now. I can't come to youth group anymore. Pastors are weird. And the Psalms are crazy. That's what happens. But imagine for a second, you're an ancient Israelite and Egypt or Babylon or Syria is coming in and this is what they're doing to your children. Imagine you're an early Christian and the emperor Nero is taking your pastors and your parents and burning them alive because they're Christians. Imagine you're a slave working on a plantation in the, in the South and your slave owner just took away your children and sold them to somebody else. Imagine you are a Jew in a Nazi camp. Imagine you are a Ukrainian citizen hunkered up inside your home right now. Imagine you're somebody who's been bullied, who's been betrayed, who's been abused, who's been abandoned. What other prayers do we pray than psalms that are that kind of honesty? God can handle it. It makes sense in those contexts. Think, what do you pray in those situations? You pray those kinds of prayers. Well, why, why would we do that? Why would we ever say that kind of thing to God? Because naming our desire for revenge in prayer actually releases it to God. It actually releases it to him. Because what we're doing by going to God in prayer is we're refusing to actually take vengeance ourselves. We're refusing to do those things. Instead, we're taking them to God in prayer and saying, God, would you intervene? God, would you do the right thing? Would you bring about justice? What we're doing is we're, we're being really honest about what we wish God would do, but we're actually saying, God, I'm gonna leave the justice to you. I'm gonna trust you to make things right. I'm gonna trust you to defend me. I'm gonna trust you to come to my aid. I'm gonna trust you to help. I'm gonna trust you to come in and take every evil thing and make it good again. Instead of me taking things into my own hands and trying to act out violently in some way against those who've been violent to me, instead I'm gonna take it to God in prayer and say, God, would you do something? And I'm gonna be honest about what I wish you would do, but I'm gonna trust whatever it is that you're going to do and the way that you're gonna do it and how you're gonna do it and the timing that you're gonna do it. I'm gonna trust it to you. There's an Old Testament scholar that says these Psalms teach us to let it go and to hold it back. They teach us to let our anger go to God in prayer so that it doesn't go public, so that it doesn't go out sideways, so that we don't actually do these things. See, what we see happening all around us in our world is that anger is being unleashed in violence rather than in prayer. 
We see it happening in our schools. We saw it happen in Buffalo. We saw it happen in California. We see it happen over and over and over and over again in homes and in schools and in neighborhoods and in supermarkets and on social media. We see people letting their anger go public in violence rather than go to God in prayer. But what this actually does, this, is, this actually moves us toward forgiveness. See, the first step in forgiveness is refusing to take revenge on those who've hurt us. That's where forgiveness begins, is by refusing to take revenge. And so what these Psalms do is they say, I want to take revenge, God. This is what I want to have happen to that person or to that thing. Or this, is, this is what happened, God, and this is what I want to do about it, but I'm bringing it to you so I don't do that, and instead I trust it to you. And that's that first movement toward forgiveness. Perhaps this is actually what Jesus meant when he said, but I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Maybe he meant to pray these kinds of prayers, to take those things and to turn them to God in prayer. And then maybe after we name that, we can actually then begin to be honest and say, okay, God, what I really want is for you to reveal yourself to that person. What I really want is for you to bring them to repentance. What I really want is for you to heal them from whatever it is that they're hurting that's causing them to hurt me. God, what I really want you to do those things, but I need to name these other things first. Jesus calls us to pray those things, but I think he also calls us to pray these kind of prayers. We can just be honest, not try to bottle our anger up, but release it to God in prayer and then hand it over to him. The third and final piece of these Psalms is what's called the resolution as the worship team comes forward. What happens in these Psalms is the psalmist goes from cursing their enemies to declaring or affirming their trust in God. And they go from saying these things that cause us to go, well, you can't say that, to vowing to worship, vowing to trust God with whenever and however he chooses to resolve the issue. Psalm 58 ends this way. It says, the righteous will be glad when they are avenged. When they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked, then they will say, surely the righteous are still rewarded. Surely there's a God who judges the earth. They hand it over to God and say, God, you're gonna do what you're gonna do. And we're gonna trust you with how you're gonna do it and when you're gonna do it. Not all of them resolve that way. Psalm 137 just ends right after that bit about the rocks. But Psalm 138, the very next Psalm opens with praise. So I think what the psalmist teaches us, the psalms teach us to do is to keep praying, knowing that eventually we'll get there. If we keep bringing our complaints, if we keep asking God to intervene, eventually we're gonna get to a place of trust. We're gonna get to a place of worship. We're gonna get to a place where we can actually release these things to God in prayer. So what the psalmist teaches us to do is to, while we wait for the justice that we want, we can worship our God. We wait for the thing that we really want to happen. We can trust God. We can worship him in the midst of it. The psalms teach us to keep praying, to keep seeing, to keep coming back, to keep naming what needs to be named, to keep releasing what needs to be released, and to keep entrusting our whole selves, even our anger to God in prayer. Because God's worthy of it. He can handle it. And so tonight, what I want us to do is just take a moment and practice. Should I think for a second, this band will begin to play just a little bit here in a second. Maybe open your hands like this. I want you to think about what's making you angry right now. 
Maybe it's nothing, and if, if so, that's great. Maybe it's something in the past that's made you angry. Today, I spent part of the day with um, a young woman whose husband just died unexpectedly. Two kids, three years old and one year old. And I'm angry. I'm angry at death. I'm angry at the injustice of it. Afterwards, I was on the phone with another woman who's fleeing a domestic violence situation. It makes me angry. I'm angry at that guy and what he's doing. I can name that to God in prayer. What is that thing? And just begin to name it. Raise your complaint to God and say, God, I am angry that. God, I'm upset. I'm infuriated. Name it to him. And then be honest. Ask God to intervene. You need to tell God what you wish he would do about that situation. Take what it is that you want to do and just turn it over to him. Say, God, I'm not, I'm not, this is what I want to do, but I'm not going to do it. Instead, I'm going to tell you and I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust this to you. Because I know you'll do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. That you are actually the only one who has the power to make things, things right. If I actually do these things, I know it'll cause even more problems. This is what I want to do, God. Name it to him. He can handle it. And then when you're ready, you've made that complaint, named it before God, and asked him to intervene. And when you're ready, just stand. It's all right, God. I know underneath this anger, there's hurt, there's fear, there's sadness. There's all kinds of things. And I want to do something. But I'm going to trust you. And why don't I just stand and say, okay, God, I'm going to worship you. I'm going to resolve to trust you. I'm going to resolve to say, okay, in the midst of this situation, I'm still going to believe that you are good, that you are on the throne, that you are in control. I'm going to keep putting my hope in you that someday you'll return and you're going to make everything right and good again. You're going to wipe away every tear from every eye. I'm going to trust that you're actually even more angry about this than I am. Now I'm going to worship you. I'm going to trust you. And so when you're ready, stand and then we'll go ahead and, and just sing.
and ask the Lord to come into these moments for us because he's worthy. Thanks again for listening to this message from New Life Student Ministries. If you want to keep up with what's happening with us, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at NL Student Ministries.